You can be turning in your bulletin or on your phone or in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. By the way, I have had an absolutely wonderful weekend. And it has been a joy to get to know uh, Owen and now his family uh, over the months and now you. And um, I was telling him, I, you, you know what I really expect to happen in the next three years? I think Belfont is more and more going to be talking about Jesus because of the way you all love this town. I've been so blessed by, by just hearing and seeing what you all mean to this town already. And you're just infants in terms of a, of a church. It's really, it, it makes my day, it makes my life worthwhile to see what God's already doing here. So hang in there. God is enough. Jesus is enough. The Spirit is enough for you, and he'll, He will see you through. Before we read the Scripture there in Mark, let me just ask a question. It's sort of a poll. This is a hatch poll. How many of you still have a phone at home with a landline? You know, kids, those phones that have a cord into the wall, and you have, you have to stay by. How many of you still have a landline? One, two, three, four. It's about half a dozen. Isn't it funny? Uh, unless you're in an office, uh, a, a, a phone with a landline, it's anachronistic. It's out of, way out of date, isn't it? And I, I, and I wonder if the same thing's going to be soon true of, of cable TV. You know, we gave up cable. No, no, no. We, we, we haven't given up cable because we're, hey, I'm 81, and we want our channels. But my kids, my kids, Dad, you've got a Roku TV. You've got, by the way, let me ask another old, you oldsters who know. Do you know who was probably more responsible than any other single human being for the expansion of cable TV? Remember a guy called, who was called the mouth of the South, Ted Turner. Does that ring any bells with anybody? So you young folks, don't, you don't know Ted Turner. He founded CNN. And the whole idea of 24-hour news, 24-hour cable, cable, it was amazing. Um, I once read him quoted. Uh, he said, Ted Turner said, I was the world's greatest yachtsman. He was. I'm close to being one of the world's greatest businessmen. I'm close to being the world's greatest environmentalist. I think he may still own the most bison of anybody in this country, in the world. His goal, hear his words. I'm trying to set the all-time record for achievement by one person in one lifetime. And that puts you in pretty big company. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Gandhi, Christ, hmm. Muhammad, Buddha, Washington, Roosevelt, and Churchill. One friend of his said, Ted is the great I am. I pray better things of Mr. Turner now in his old age. Uh, but I don't know about you, but I tend to recoil from that kind of strutting arrogance. But I wonder if I, if we don't actually sometimes long to be great in our own arena 
like he does. Uh, it could be the arena of student or teacher or successful dad measured by my great kids or the kids that other kids at school think are so cool or financially secure or model mom or M&A staff member or, or the, the perfect balanced person or the, or the person who's always right or successful engineer or, or whatever your arena is. Uh, I discover in me, at least, I don't want to project on you, but I discover a troubling tendency, a powerful drive to succeed, to be something, to be noticed, to be valued, to be esteemed. Is that wrong? Is it wrong? To, to, is ambition wrong? Not necessarily. How do you get at this? Do you sense the tension there? Is it wrong to want to do things well? Is it wrong to be really great? What's Jesus' words on greatness? Uh, watch as I read the scripture in Luke, and you, as you follow along in your bulletin or on your phone or in the Bible. Watch uh, three groups of people and three different attitudes that God has toward these three groups of people. Beginning uh, with verse 43 in uh, Luke 9. This is right after Jesus has come down from the mountain and his disciples are there. And, and he has miraculously healed a man's son. And seeing that, all the, verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty or the greatness of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. And they, were, they could, would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one was the greatest. Ah, here we go. Which one's the greatest? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a little child, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who's least among you all is one who's great. You get that? John answered, very defensively, clearly. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Don't stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, you know what that means, go to the cross, ascension, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Ever feel like that? And they went on to another village. Well, no, no, he, he rebuked them, turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Lord, this morning, we need your help. We come with 
all kind of needs, aspirations, desires, frustrations, ambitions. Jesus, we need you to show us what it really means to be great. Uh, so lead us, we pray. Lead me as I speak. And may human lips speak to human hearts, we pray. Amen. What is true greatness? Uh, here, as in several other places in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples are, are, are fighting each other about who, is, who, is, who would be greatest. Seems to me that one, one major piece of the concept of greatness has to do with relationships, how I do in relationship with someone else. That's why it talks about them arguing among each other. Great. If I'm great, it has to do with how I measure up either to someone who's greater or someone who's lesser. It has to do with how I relate to other people. And, and greatness, what is greatness according to Jesus here? Did you get it? Greatness is being last. Greatness is being least. It's backwards from the most, most of our culture and my own heart's thinking. It's the, it's the low place. It's the place of humiliation. It's the place of being lowly with others. And that smacks me in the face. I don't like that because I want my way. I don't know about you. But how does a really great person function with people, with other people? Look at the three kinds of people that Jesus talks about. First in verse 48, Jesus has a little child and he says he's having had him stand beside him. Almost as if an equal. I think that's Jesus' point. What was a child in those days? Not much. A child in the first century was relatively nothing. Unwanted kids were often just dumped on the trash. You remember the other people who were not particularly, who didn't matter to the folks of old first church of Jerusalem. Remember the riffraff and the gentle, the Gentiles and the common people and the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and children. Remember the disciples when the parents brought some kids for Jesus to bless? And what, what the disciples said, no, 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 this is for us adults. Come on. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Of these kids is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, those kids were the least among them and didn't matter at all. And Jesus said, no, no. Not only are they equal, he who receives a child is receiving me. I value them. The really great person values people that just don't matter. Who are the people that don't matter in your life? I got a call from Bob, a member of our small group that met in our home. Hey, Jim, I invited Joe Smith to come to Wednesday night to our group. I would call him a house church. Bob can't see the wince on my face and the groan in my spirit. Oh, no, not him. He'll mess up the group. Joe, he's just weird. Socially inept, intrusive, sort of a church tramp. 
dependent, needy, noisy. Oh, not Joe. Joe didn't matter to me. I wasn't welcoming this little child. My sense of greatness came because Joe didn't count. There was a status, you see, I had because I was better than Joe. He didn't matter. I was least. He, I was great. He was least. There's a greatness in status over people that don't matter. This most often happens in our minds. But inevitably, it'll boil over, seep over into our behavior. So the least among us remain the least among us. Remember the greatest, the, 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 the context of this discussion of greatness? What was, ha- what was happening? What do you expect to see sandwiched every time the disciples talk about greatness? A discussion by Jesus of his death. It's amazing. See, here... In this greatness argument, it follows Jesus healing the spirit-possessed boy. And while everyone's amazed, everyone's amazed, Jesus says in verse 43, you think, uh, 44, they they think this is greatness? Listen carefully. Let this sink into your ears. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to the cross. And then comes the disciples' greatness debate. So I thought of Joe. And I thought of Jesus. His utter humiliation. That was Jesus' greatness. On the cross, God was punishing him for my sin. I was the nobody. And on the cross, Jesus became nobody so that I could become somebody with him. I was the one that didn't matter. I was the single sheep that was lost, and he left the 99 to find me. Me, of all people, how could? Jesus became a nobody so that I could become somebody with him. I began to see Joe in another light. I was still, still most often embarrassed by him. But he actually became a part of us. Jesus loves nobodies. And so can I. Who are the people off your radar? Who are the nobodies? Well, that, that's part of the problem because so often they count so little that we don't even notice. They're off the radar. The classmate who sits all alone. The grocery store clerk that you always see but never see. The immigrant, the refugee, the person of another race whose path we may cross but never or rarely engage. The unchurched folk we rarely ever meet because of our Christian ghetto in which we cocoon ourselves. Folks in a different socioeconomic class. New people at church. Why Why are they off our radar? Because we prefer to hobnob with the beautiful people, whoever that is in your own context. It's the cool kids I want to be with, you see, at school. It's the people who are successful. It's the the beautiful people, however you describe them. And our sense of greatness can ride on their coattails. At school, in the workplace, even at church, we can, and on Sunday, we can automatically head to the people we know and we leave the nobodies alone. I can be such a name dropper. 
If it's someone who is well-known and I can be connected somehow, I can always look for a reason to just drop the name of my brother Nathan, who a couple years ago retired as the president of Wake Forest University, and I'm his brother. And I can sort of ride Nat's coattails to greatness. You know the feeling? You know how you drop people's names so you can sort of have a greatness? Because now you're nobody. I mean, now you're not a nobody. The great person knows he's valued by Jesus because of where that trip to Jerusalem led. And so he serves those that don't matter. Because by valuing them, he's valuing Jesus. Because Jesus valued him enough to die for you. Some of you may be wrestling with what, uh, with what Christianity is all about. And I'm so glad you're here. This is a terrific place for you to be. And to keep coming, keep wrestling, and talk to Owen and others. Um, and some of you may be saying, you know, I know my worst self. I know my self-absorption. I know my determination to be my own God. And if there really is a God, and if Jesus really is God, and if he really did die on the cross for my crimes against God, it's just too bad. Because I'm too messed up. I'm a real nobody. Let me just remind you, remember the greatness of Jesus. He loves and died for nobodies like you, like me. And some of you may have been in the, in the church all your life. And if you've never come to the place where you know deep down inside how messed up you are because of your own crimes against a holy God, if you've never come to that place, you may not be a Christian, even though you may be a member of a church. Because God loves nobodies, not people who have it all together spiritually. Those are the people God's love, God loves, Jesus loves, nobodies. We're all the ones that don't count. How can we not love those that don't count around us then? Because we've been loved like that. Who are the folks that don't matter in your life? Here's a little test. Who would, who would be the people that you would be embarrassed for your good friends to see you hanging out with? Hmm? Got them in mind? Who would embarrass you? Who would, if, you if you had them over or if you had coke, a Coke with them? There's a line in the English mystery that I read recently. It said that, but there was something about Ross that made you feel as if you didn't matter at all. Can people say that about you? A little bit later, we'll be coming to the table and you'll take the bread and wine. As you do that, thank the Lord that we can't say that about Jesus. We cannot say there's something about Jesus that makes as if I don't matter at all. Thank him that he loves nobodies. You matter to him today. But there's a second kind of person the truly great person deals with. And, and John, John in verse 49 was clearly defensive, responding to what Jesus had said about the little kid. And he says, we saw a man casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't in the PCA. He wasn't in following with us. He wasn't in our group. He wasn't in our tribe. He wasn't in our denomination. He's not following with us. Okay, Jesus, John says, 
If I can't gain status over people that don't matter, I can gain significance over people I disagree with. You see that? He's outside our group. He's outside our tribe. Yeah, he's casting out demons in your name, but he's not in the know. He's not one of us. So I can feel greater by pulling the circle tighter. And it's me and us and them. You know? You know that feeling? They don't raise their kids by the right method. And we draw the circle tighter. They don't really understand our church and where it ought to be headed. We draw the circle tighter. Have you seen their kids? He's a Republican. How can she be a Democrat? We draw the circle tighter. They're not really one of us. We've been here from the beginning. We draw the circle tighter. They're not really cool. And we draw the circle tighter. This is usually in our minds, but it always bubbles out into our behavior. And our greatness comes through our sense of significance compared to those outside the circle, like John's did. He's not following with us. We can look down on him so arrogantly. Jesus responds with a scarily broad principle, doesn't he? He says, the great person serves people he disagrees with by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Draw him into your circle. Who do I give a benefit of a doubt to? Moi. Me. Who, who do we usually uh, don't give the benefit of the doubt to? It's, it's, it's them. It's we judge other people. We're the hardest on them. The great person restricts that, reverses that. He's, he's hardest on him, on, on himself, and gives everybody else the benefit of the doubt. Jesus says the great person reverses it, taking them into the circle, cutting them some slack, giving them a break. Oprah Winfrey and I were born in the same delta town of, of Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Anybody been to Kosciuszko? I don't see a single hand. Um, uh, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born with grits in my mouth. And I had, I had an all too typical, uh, as a southerner, a typical view of minority folks, black folks. Even though from an early age, I, I couldn't understand why in South Carolina, where I was raised, uh, Ruby would never eat with us at the table. The Lord's grown me uh, a huge amount uh, out of that bigotry. Uh, it began when my son married Josephine Getonga from Nairobi, Kenya. But you know who I'm bigoted against now? Bigots. See, I can, be, I can still exclude people from me. I can have them and us until I remember, whoa, Hatch, wait, 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 wait. Why did Jesus make his way to Jerusalem? What was going to happen there? Why was the Son of Man betrayed? His humiliation on the cross, naked, dying for the sins of the world, his humiliation was to bring me into his circle. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God, brought in. Once excluded, I'm now accepted, drawn in by his grace, adopted into his family. You know what the amazing thing is? When Jesus was on the cross, 
He drew us into his family by being kicked out of his own on the cross. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Why have you kicked me out of your circle? He did that to draw us in, to make us his, his family. God chose somehow not to belong to the Father. Jesus chose that. So you could always belong to him. The great person knows she's accepted and serves people she disagrees with by giving them the benefit of the doubt, drawing them into her circle. This is so critical in our present day, in our culture, in our neighborhood, our church, our families. Who in your circle do you, do you disagree with the strongest in your neighborhood, in your church, in your circles of people? Uh, what do you do? What can you do to draw them in? One of the greatest pains a human being can have is the feeling of not belonging, not having a place. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, just a reminder that Christianity has always taught that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was just like, as Owen said to these dear folks here, they now belong. They belong to you, but they belong to Jesus. Just keep remembering that as you, as you wrestle with Christianity. And we in the church can, can work hard, harder at building deeper, vibrant community by reaching out to those that don't yet belong. And even to some regular attenders or members who may not feel they belong. Draw them in. Thank God as you come to the table this, this morning. Thank the Lord. That on the cross, he, Jesus was abandoned so that you could belong to him this morning. There's a third kind of person, though. Verse 51, as Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And he sends the, the advance party to Samaria to get ready for his coming. And the Samaritans jerked the welcome mat. They didn't leave the light on at their Motel 6 that day. And the only reason... It's pure prejudice and hatred. They saw they were headed to Jerusalem. And the Jews and Samaritans hated each other's guts. And they see Jesus and his cohort going to Jerusalem, and they say, ah, no, lock the door. And James and John show a clear response, don't they? Like an Old Testament prophet in verse 54. Lord, should we call fire down and consume them? In Mark's gospel, Jesus gives those two guys a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. They were the Zappers. And they, they would show their loyalty to Jesus, their proximity to him, by calling down fire on their enemies, literally giving them hell. <laughs> They're saying, if I can't gain status over people, who don't matter, if I gain, can't gain significance over people I disagree with, I'll gain superiority over people that I can judge, my enemies of whatever sort. You see that? Few, few of us don't have out-and-out -out enemies. That, that we, uh, few of us would have people that we, where we would say, I really want them to go to hell, like James and John apparently did. No, we judge much more subtly, don't we? People who've hurt us. That, 
they're not out and out enemies, but people have hurt us or who have mis- misled us or who have whatever. And we exercise our greatness in passive aggressive behavior that, that can undercut or malign or ignore or roll their eyes or talk about them. We can even gloat about people when bad things happen to them. Like Jonah did when he preached to Nineveh and went up on the city to see. He was just hoping against hope that God would judge those crazy Ninevites. So when cocky parents have trouble with their kid, I can say, very interesting. <laughs> the best student in the class who's too big for his britches make a C, makes a C and I say, busted, yeah. He got his. You ever do that in your mind? I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm alarmed at the, at the quiet glee I can have in my own heart with the downfall of a pastor who's been ranting and raving on social media against a pastor friend of mine. When something happens to him, yeah. How do you treat those who've hurt you? In your mind or in your behavior. What's Jesus' word on greatness here? Okay, guys, no condemnation, no condemnation. No fire-breathing destruction. What is greatness? Compassion, withholding judgment. Again, it's the lowly place, the lowly place of simply taking wrong and dishing out compassion. You know who that's like? It's like you've been treated by Jesus. It's like you've been treated by him. Because it is so hard to love our enemies of whatever sort. It's impossible until we go back to what was happening. James and John, where were you headed? You're going to Jerusalem. And what was going to happen? On the cross, James and John, Jesus was going to die for you. He suffered wrongly. He didn't open his mouth. We were his enemies. And we got compassion. Our son planted, in, uh, church planted and pastored in London for about 17 years. And uh, several years ago, while he was there, he, his, the, the family flew home mid, mid-December and he donated a kidney to a dear friend in, our, in the church. And over the holidays, everybody said, oh, what a wonderful Christmas gift. Ah, da, da, da. What a wonderful God Chris is. And he kept trying to deflect the adulation because he said, that's what a friend does for a friend. And on Christmas morning, we had a whole slew of grandkids and kids. And, uh, and before he opened the gifts, I was talking to the kids, especially the grandkids, the little kids. Um, by the way, my, my little grandkids are now parents themselves. Shocking. Uh, and I said, I remind, it hit me, and I reminded them that Chris's gift of a kidney to Tim was so different from God's gift of Jesus to us. Tim was a friend. We were enemies. Wow. What if Tim had killed Chris's wife, my daughter-in-law, Josephine? And then with Tim in prison, Chris hears that Tim needs a kidney. And then to the murderer of his wife, Chris gives a kidney. 
that's a little tiny, tiny bit more nearly similar to what God has done for you. We got mercy when we deserve God's judgment. A great person understands that he is the recipient of compassion and mercy, not judgment. Because Jesus got our judgment. And so he serves her or his friends with mercy and compassion. Who has hurt you in the neighborhood, in the school? Who's really shafted you? Who's dealt, with, dealt you wrong? In your mind, have you been zapping those suckers like James and John? Has it impacted your attitude and actions as you gain significance by being so superior? You can just ignore them or roll your eyes at them. Who's hurt you that needs to be treated like you've been treated by God? Those of you who are wrestling with Christianity, let me just ask you to think about this. Christianity is the only religion, only religion where God himself, Jesus, becomes a man in order to die for his enemies. No other religion. It's, so, it's almost weird. It's not fair. It's an unfair thing. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. That's really not fair. He, but he loves you that much this morning. You know, as I come to get to know my wife better after 58 years, I'm still learning. I keep realizing that the only way to love her and serve Jan is by coming to understand what her interests, her loves, her aspirations, her needs, her fears, what she is. I can't just love her in the abstract. Does that make sense? I need to love her according to what she is and what she needs and who she is. The same is with God. You can't love God in the abstract. You've got to love God like I love Jan. I've got to love Jan about what drives her. What drives God? What drives God? People. What drives God is people that don't matter. People that are outside his circle. People that are his enemies. And we can love him by loving like he does those kinds of folks. So what are you going to do? You're going to go home this afternoon and feel guilty? Say, oh, I've got to do better. I've got to, I've got, I really got to, oh, that's a neighbor. I don't know my name. I know he's a nobody. I've got to, got to get to know him. Or uh, I've got to. See, if you focus that way on what you haven't done, you'll just add a ton of guilt to you because it's not going to work just by trying to do better. Let me suggest that you, tonight, tomorrow, come back to the table. Come back to Jesus all over again, every single day. Focus not on so much on what you haven't done, but what he has done for you. As you take the bread and the wine this morning, thank him that he loves you, the nobody. They brought you into his family, that he loves you, the enemy, his enemies. Let's pray. Kind, kind Father, forgive my our subtle and not so subtle graspings for greatness. Precious Jesus, as you did to your disciples, turn our notions of greatness on its head as we better understand how we've been treated by you. Thank you for taking that lowly place for us all the way to the cross 
Holy Spirit, we need your help. May we keep knowing better how much you love us and empower us to serve our Lord by serving others. May we love, Lord. May we love and serve those who don't matter, those we disagree with, those who have hurt us. But may we do so because you've gripped us with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.